a couple years ago, around the same time of year when we have like, you know, the lovely winter weather that we have and there's ice on the sidewalks, I parked my car and got out to walk to work, which was across the street in an office building. And so I think I had these same like no grip, slippery dress shoes on that I have on today. And I got out and got to the corner and took a step off the sidewalk and just flew backwards um, on some ice. And when I did that, you know, like it took me a second to figure out what was going on, but I remember being really sore. And so I, I stood up and had some pain in my back, right? Like something was out of, out of joint a little bit. And so I went into work and tried to go about my day as best I could, but wasn't able to really sit very well without some discomfort, wasn't able to stand very well. Um, and so I knew something was off, like my posture just was off because of, of the fall, right? And so um, after kind of thinking through what I need to do, I decided to make an appointment with a chiropractor because they are the ones that can fix things like that, right? They can fix our posture, they can fix aches and pains that are related uh, to that when we're out of, out of joint. And so I, I started going to a chiropractor and through like a series of those appointments, it was a totally different world, right? Where the pain was and where the things were out of alignment they were able to get them in alignment. I was able to, to stand without pain. I was able to sit without pain and, and just feel a lot better, right? And so that experience taught me a good bit about the importance of posture. It's, it's important how we stand, right? If we continue to slump and have our shoulders forward a lot, like we're kind of asking for, for problems later in life, you know, with our, with our back, right? Um, and I'm preaching to the choir. I have really bad posture. Um, but, but our posture is an important thing physically, but also... Today, I think what this passage is teaching us is that our posture is also very important spiritually. The posture of our heart matters to God, right? The way that we worship him, the way that we trust him, um, we, we do those things on his terms in a way that he's designed. And, and so Jesus is spending some time here unpacking that for his disciples and explaining you know, what it might look like um, for the, the Christian to, to have the posture that is, is required. And so... The Christian life really demands that we live a certain way as we are living faithfully um, with an urgency and an anticipation of Jesus' return, right? We talked about this last week. Um, Josh, when we're looking at chapter 17, we talked a lot about the day of the Lord and how the disciples wanted to know like, what that was going to be like, when, when it was going to come. And Jesus says, you know, you're not going to know the day or the hour. You're not going to know what it's going to look like, but you need to be ready for that. And so um, this first part of chapter 18 really builds off of that idea of, of being ready for the coming of God's kingdom and what that, what that looks like. You know, living with urgency and anticipation um, is, is something that we're, we're called to do as, as God's people, and, and we really do need to be ready for it, right? We can't just kind of lackadaisically follow um, loosely what God has said, and then we're ready for him when he comes, right? Like, are we going to feel ready? Like, if we've spent our life kind of half-heartedly following Christ, it's going to be more, um, more scary for us, I think, than exciting, right, when, when Christ comes back. And, and living this way, living intentionally, living with a posture um, that is worshipful is easier said than done, right? Because we live in what J.C. Ryle calls the, the long, weary interval between the first and second advents. So I'm guessing you probably feel that, right? You feel like this, this longing for God to return and to make things right. We're weary from not just last year and all the action-packed events of 2020, but we're just weary from life in a broken world, right? Life is hard. It's, it's difficult. Uh, there are things about it we don't like, right? There are things that um, vie for our attention, and it can be 
even harder when we're wronged by other people or when we ourselves are wronging people out of a superior attitude. Um, and life is also made hard when we don't see the reality of our own sin and our own brokenness. And so, you know, these aren't necessarily big things, but these are like the little things, the fine details of our life um, that tend to be so difficult, right? This is the day-to-day um, attempting to follow the Lord, and it's, it's hard. There's injustice. There's injustice outside around us that we can see in the world, no matter where we live or what we do, but there's also um, a an, an tendency towards injustice in us, right? We don't always treat other people the way that God has told us to treat them out of a love for him, out of acknowledging that they're made in his image. Um, we don't do that all the time. We don't do that perfectly. Um, and a lot of that comes out of a prideful heart. And so just looking first at these parables, we're going to see today that, that even though um, we're waiting faithfully for God's kingdom, we often forget the promises of God in the midst of life's hardships, in the midst of our own hardness of heart. Like we forget what God has promised. Um, and the disciples were no different, right? They, they lived lives full of challenges. They walked with Jesus physically in the flesh and saw him do amazing things that pointed people to the reality that he was the Lord. And yet they still struggled, right? They still struggled with doubt. They still struggled with denial. Thinking of Thomas and Peter, and they still struggled with betrayal, if you think about Judas. Um, and so they're no different than us, right? Those are things that characterize our life sometimes, right? We can, we can struggle with those things. Um, but there are three realities that I want to see, I want us to see today that influence our Christian posture from, from this passage. So three things, if you're taking notes, our help comes from the Lord, our hope is in the Lord, and our home is with the Lord. So our hope comes from the Lord, we're going to look at first, our hope is in the Lord, and our home is with the Lord. And based on these three realities, we're also going to see there are three responses for us as followers of Christ to these realities. So um, these are the things that should flow out. This is the posture that should flow out of, of those, those facts, right? Raised hands and persistent prayer is the first. Humble hearts that are crying out to God for mercy and the childlike faith that approaches our Father. So we're going we're gonna to get into that now as we look at the beginning of, of chapter 18. So um, this idea that our help comes from the Lord. So come to him with your hands raised and persistent prayer, right? Here's the first indication of what our posture should look like as we, we follow the Lord, hands raised and persistent prayer. And one of the helpful things about both of these parables is that Jesus tells us what they're about. <laughs> so he kind of does the hard work. It's almost as if I could go sit down, right, to an extent. Um, and he, he says, he told them a parable in verse one to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so just thinking through who Jesus is talking to here, he's talking to his disciples, right? The people who are following him the closest. And what he has to say to them has to do with how they should always pray and not lose heart. And another way to think of this is he's telling them about always praying without giving up, right? So it's not just this idea of constantly praying about things, but praying specific things like over and over and over, right? And so I think we can get a glimpse of what that looks like in our own life when we, we see injustice, for instance, like this, this widow is experiencing. We see things that are wrong in our culture and in the world just around us throughout history, right? And, and we, we want to say, God, make this right. Like, this isn't right. Make it right. Um, and that's where uh, this widow that Jesus is speaking about is. Like, she, she's been wronged, and likely um, her adversary is someone who is, has taken away her financial stability, most likely. So this is kind of a legal legal type dispute, right? 
the a widow has not a lot of social standing. They're not super influential uh, in, in the communities that they live in, um, and they don't have a lot of money, right? And so that's why in the Old Testament we see so much about how God's people are to care for the widow and care for the orphan, care for the disenfranchised, right? And so this woman is one of those disenfranchised people. And she um, has been wronged. And so likely this financial wrong is like not having money. So she's you know, starting to maybe get desperate. If you've ever not had money, <laughs> you know that it's, it doesn't feel like a small deal, right? That's, it's a big deal. You, you might feel frantic. You might panic a little bit. And you can look at the local news any given night and see the results of maybe people that are in a financial pinch and some of the drastic measures they go to 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 rectify that, right? And, and so this woman's no different. She was in need of help, and she was on her own helpless to, to fix her situation. There was nothing she could do as a widow um, to address her adversary, the one who'd wronged her, to fix what was wrong. And so what does she do? She goes to um, the person she knows can help, right? And it's interesting that Jesus describes the judge in this way because he's someone who neither feared God nor respected man in verse two. And if, if we're his disciples and we're thinking through that as, as God's people, thinking through the Old Testament and all that Old Testament law discusses, you know, these are things that are like red flags. Like this is like a bad guy that she has to go and deal with. Um, someone who doesn't love God and who doesn't love others, right? So he's breaking the cardinal rules of life. Um, he doesn't love God and he doesn't love other people, but she knows that he's the one who can help, that can fix her situation, and so she goes to him. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you had nowhere to go, like you were in a situation where you had been wronged, perhaps, and the only person to go to was, you know, maybe someone who was intimidating, maybe someone who was scary, but you knew they could help you. Um, maybe that's being bullied in middle school or something like that, and you go to the principal's office, even though you're scared of the principal, but you know the principal can help. Or if you um, are having an issue at work and you know you need to go to your supervisor and, and talk about a situation, maybe your supervisor is kind of intimidating, but you know they can help you. They can step into the situation and ideally make it right, right? And so that is what Jesus is talking about here as this woman goes to this intimidating, um, unkind judge. Uh, he, he can fix what, what her issues are. And notice in verse Three, the woman says, give me justice against my adversary. When she comes to the judge, she's not asking him a question. She's not asking, will you help me? I have this issue. You know, she's saying, no, I know you can help me. Help me. And it's, it's really a, a desperate plea, but it's rooted in the fact that she knows he can help. Right? It's not a matter of whether or not he can. Um, she knows he can, but, it, but it's will he. And so she keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps reciting the same thing over and over and over. And if you have kids or if you work with kids or even if you work with some adults, the, the idea of persistence, right? Like that can, be, that can be a lot sometimes, right? It's like, why are they asking the same thing over and over? Like this is so monotonous, so repetitive. It's hard to keep your patience in those situations, right? Um, it, it's hard to want to do what the persistent person is asking even maybe. But the, the judge here, instead of being like filled with rage, right, we see that instead it's like it, he, he's worn down by the woman's words, right? So um, one of the things that he says in verse five, you know, he, he's, granting her, he's granting her her request, 
because of her continual coming, because she keeps saying, give me justice against my adversary. Give me justice against my adversary. Um, and he, there's this idea that he is, is beaten up, right? And he doesn't want to be beat, beaten up further. Um, and then in verse 7, he talks about how he gave her her request so, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And this phrase for beat me down is the same as to give someone a black eye, right? So like, this is just such an intense like persistence, right? It's not just not just a nagging persistence, you know, because that's that's one thing, and that's really not effective, you know. But a persistent, persistent call that's impassioned, that's that's really sincere, that is desperate. Like he can see the woman's heart, I'm sure, as she's coming to him, and it's wearing him down. Even even though he's someone who doesn't love God and doesn't care anything about other people, there's something about the persistence and the heart behind what this woman is doing that helps, helps him to grant her request, right? Um, and so she's not, she's not wasting her injustice, which is, I think, another important, important thing. She's definitely been wronged. We don't really know exactly what happened, but she, we know she's been wronged a great deal, right? But she, she didn't just retreat into the, the shadows of her, her house or the shadows of the streets in her community, right? She's doing something that she feels is the right thing to do. She's approaching this judge who can help her and taking action, right? She's not wasting the, the suffering, not wasting the injustice. Um, and I think there's a lesson there for, for us, right? To not waste these, these wrongs that might happen to us or these situations that we could uh, maybe do without, right? And, and I think if 2020 has done anything, it's given us a wealth of sermon illustrations. And, and I think a lot of a lot of what come, has come out of the past year is just like, oh, is it over yet? Like, are we done? You know, is is this is this all finished? You know, and here we are in a new year, and we're not done. We're not we're not finished. There's still a lot of residual effects of, of COVID and stay-at-home orders and and just all the inconveniences of, of life, right? Um, but we can miss in the midst of that. We can miss an, an active posture of of seeking God and learning from God, right? There's, there's a great article that the Gospel Coalition posted about a year ago, um, last March, called Don't Waste Your Family Quarantine. And it was about this idea, right? Just to not waste the moments that we have, even though we're inconvenienced, even though, you know, some people feel more convenience than others, but just to not waste this, this time, even though it's not an ideal time for a lot of people, but not to waste it, to, to use it to grow closer to the Lord, to grow closer to those around us that we love. So to love God more and to love people more, right? The opposite of what this judge was doing. And, and so I think we can be encouraged by the posture of this, this widow, her persistence, knowing that she risked a lot likely to, to go to this judge who could have thrown her out, could have had her punished somehow, you know, but, but he didn't. She just came with that persistent message. Um, and, you know, for us, I think it can often be be easy to just kind of throw up our hands in frustration and, and ask God to um, just end, end what's, what's going on, end this wrong that's being done to me, you know, or even to ask, how long do we have to, to deal with this? Whatever it is. Um, it could be something significant. It could be something small, right? Um, but our tendency is just to kind of be flippant and just be frustrated and throw up our hands. But really, um, we should be throwing our hands up in faith, saying, you know, we know that whatever we're facing, whatever is going on, no matter how significant, or insignificant it might, it might be, we know that the Lord cares for us. We know that we can come to him and that we can throw up our hands to him and cry out 
and, and he will help us, right? And, and that's the point of this parable, really. Jesus, after painting this picture for the disciples, comes back in verse 6 and just kind of encourages the disciples to think a little bit. And I think we should do likewise here. He says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. You know, he, the unrighteous judge granted the request of this persistent woman. And then he says in verse 7, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And he's saying, if this unrighteous judge that, that I mentioned is willing to do justice to this woman, how much more likely am I, as the Lord, likely to, to give justice to my people, right? If, if we would just cry out to him and acknowledge that, right? And, and so this is going to be particularly resonant example for the disciples, I think, because they're you know, not living in between two advents necessarily, but they're living at a time when there's a lot of injustice, there's a lot of persecution, there's a lot of unpopularity among those who are following Jesus. And then after Jesus is crucified and then resurrected and then ascends into heaven, their troubles don't stop, right? They, they have more trouble to deal with. They have more risk. There's more difficulty. And it would be easy for them to just throw up their hands and, and just cry out like, why, you know, in, in a flippant way. But instead, throughout the New Testament, you have a picture of these faithful men who are acknowledging Jesus is the Lord. We can trust him. He's good. And they're throwing up their hands in faith and not in, in a giving up type of posture, right? And so I think Jesus' words for them are important and probably words that they're going to go back to later after he's no longer with them physically to remember, right? And I think the same is true for us. We're going to want to remember this. Like we're living, unlike the disciples, we're living between those two advents. He's come and he's given us himself, and he's coming again to right all the wrongs, to end every injustice. But we're not there yet, and, and we're not going to know when that time is coming. And that can be kind of unnerving, especially as the world is increasingly crazy and our life may be increasingly more difficult for whatever reason. Um, it can be easy to lose sight of what God has promised. But in the midst, in the midst of that, you know, our posture has to be one of raising our hands or persistent prayer to him, saying, no, like, Lord, we trust you. We know that you are the one, the only one who can bring justice. Um, whatever that, that justice for us looks like. You know, I don't, I don't think it's, it's necessarily a self-centered one. In terms of the disciples, it's not just justice for them, but it's justice for God's people, right? It's justice for all those who love and follow and worship the Lord. Um, Jesus is the only one who can bring that kind of justice about, and the disciples know it. And I think if we... Um, are his, we know it, right? He's, he's the only one we can go to. There's nowhere else to go, right? We look at world leaders. We look at world situations. There's, there's no one else who can help us with any type of injustice that we face. But, but the Lord can, and he hears us, and he cares about our cries. And he, he said he will give justice to us as we cry to him day and night, right? So as we're persistent in our continual pleas, right, for the same thing, like, Lord, come. We're ready. Lord, just come. Like, as we're persistent in that, God hears us. He hears what we're saying to him. And, and he says he's going to do it, right? And in verse 8, he says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, he grants justice in a quick fashion, right? And they're not going to have to wait necessarily. And I think sometimes in our world of immediate gratification, we can be confused by this, because God's timeline isn't our timeline, right? Speedily for the Lord isn't speedily for us. But that doesn't mean 
it's not true, right? Jesus is saying, I, I don't delay my justice. Justice is coming. You know, even if you can't see it right now, if you think about just the disciples' place in time or our place in time right now in the 21st century, we can't always see that. We can't always see that truth reflected. But we have to know that it's true. We have to cling to the fact that it's true and just, and just rely on that, that the Lord is not delaying his justice. He's, he's going to come and make, make things right, make things new. He's going to come and judge sin and punish sinners but he's also going to come and gather his people and, and gather them to him and take them with him. I mean, and that's, that's hopeful, right? That's something we have to hold on to, but that's also, that's also something that should fuel that posture of our heart that, that we're talking about. Um, and so Jesus shares all this. He no doubt has gotten the disciples thinking, right? And this gets us thinking as well. But he says, nevertheless, in verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith on earth? So Jesus saying, you know, even still, even though I'm telling you all these things that are true and you know all these things, when I come back, when the Son of Man returns, right, that second advent of, of Jesus coming, is he going to find faithful ones, right? And so there's this idea that faithful ones are hard to come by in God's kingdom, right? It, it's hard to be faithful. Some people think they, they're faithful and they're not, which we'll see in a minute. But Jesus is saying, he is concerned with faithful hearts who are utterly dependent on him, right? Who have nowhere else to go, and they know that he's the one who can, can bring justice and, and the kind of justice that the world needs, right? And so that, um, that brings us to our, our second point. So this, this first one, you know, our help comes from the Lord. So come to him with hands raised and persistent prayer. So our second point is our hope is in the Lord. So cry out to him with a humble heart looking at verses 9 through 14. Um, there is a college not far from where I grew up that every time they would win a football game, their band would play this song. And I don't know if it was like a country song or where it came from, something from the 80s. But the, the lyrics go something like, oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. And it just goes, it goes on and on and on about, about stuff like that. You know? And then one of the closing lines is, oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. You know, so... You just get like this super self-centered image of, of whoever is speaking, right? There's just a lot of arrogance here. And, and we laugh at that type of attitude, right? Like that, that's, that's kind of funny, kind of like ridiculous to us. But at the same time, how often are we the ones that, that think like that? How often are we the ones that elevate ourselves above other people who maybe refuse to admit when we're wrong or refuse to... Um, bend down and help and love someone else. And so we get a picture of that in the second parable, which, again, Jesus tells us the point of, which is helpful, right? In verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so he's addressing with this parable people who are saying they're righteous, they're following the Lord, and yet they don't seem to reflect his character and the way that they interact with the world around them, right? They they are puffed up, they're full of pride. And, and there's this physical posture as well as a spiritual posture with the Pharisee, right? He's, he's standing, he's very proud. <clears throat> um, he's standing by himself and you kind of get this, almost like this aside type of picture of someone, if you've ever seen a, a play where someone just kind of steps aside and they're just thinking. And a lot of times it's they're thinking about how great they are, you know, and how kind of on top of things they are. And you get that picture of, uh, this Pharisee with his hands in his pockets, you know, and, 
And he's saying something unbelievable, almost like the, the song lyrics I mentioned before. He's, he's saying, God, thank you that I'm not like other men. And it's like, what? What, what, is, what are you talking about? You know, Thank you that I'm not an extortioner, I'm not unjust, an adulterer. Or thank you that I'm not even like this tax collector that I came here to worship you with. You know, and that's pretty bold, right? That's, that's pretty arrogant. That's pretty, um, pretty risky, right? Because this prayer isn't really a prayer, right? Because it says he prayed, and this is what he said, but he's kind of talking at God. He's not really talking to God or listening to God or, or talking with him, but he's kind of talking at him about how great he is. Um, and spoiler alert, like this is not what worshiping God looks like. This is, this is what worshiping ourselves looks like. And, and we have to be careful because this is a trap we can fall into way more easily than we may think, right? And this was an issue that God's people dealt with all throughout their history, right? All throughout the Old Testament, especially with the prophets, there's this idea of God's people aren't worshiping him the way he said, or they're not worshiping him at all. And so he sends a prophet to let them know, hey, what you're doing isn't right. It's not okay. And God is going to, he's going to judge this. But then there's also on the flip side of what the prophet's saying, he's going to judge this, but he's also going to offer hope and redemption and restoration for you who repent, right? And, and so just this whole idea of not worshiping God the way that he, he has said, um, that, that's, that's, a big, that's a big issue. And so we can see a glimpse of what the Lord thinks of this type of empty religion going back to Isaiah. So I'm going to go back to Isaiah a few different times the rest of our time this morning. Um, just because I think it just has a lot of great parallels, but Isaiah 1, verses 10 through 13. I'm just going to flip there for a moment. Um, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So Isaiah's talking to God's people, and he's, he's saying they're like the ungodly in their, in their behavior and in their worship. In verse 11, of Isaiah 1. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. And so he, go, he goes on, but you can see the Lord is not interested in false worship. The Lord isn't even interested in religious ritual, right? So the Israelites were doing the right things, right? They were making sacrifices. They were coming to the Lord and offering those sacrifices. Um, but they were doing it out of the wrong posture, right? Their posture was way off. And, and that can be the same with us, right? We can come here on, on Sunday mornings and we can, we can go to worship God even in private, you know, and, and our heart can just be so far from him. But yet we're, we're doing it. We're going through the motions, right? Have, have you ever done that? Have you ever felt like you're just kind of going through the motions of the Christian life and just kind of doing these rote things, right? Um, that, that's, that's empty, right? It, it, it doesn't satisfy us. It, and it also doesn't worship the God that those things are directed at. And I think that's what a lot of the, the Pharisees is showing us here. You know, this is very obviously empty worship. And we're to not be like that in our worship. Um, and so we see next, that's one side of, of the, the pair that has approached the temple to worship God, but then we see next the tax collector, right, whose posture is totally different. And so he, in verse 13, 
standing far off. You see, you almost kind of get an idea that he doesn't even get close to where others are worshiping God. Like he, he's just kind of in the background, in the shadows a little bit, with his hands in his pockets. And he can't even look up to heaven, right? He can't even acknowledge the presence of God almost because of his shame for, for his sin, right? So he's coming with a heart that is just really broken um, and, and really humbled, which contrasts a lot with the Pharisee, who's not too broken up about anything, right? Um, and so he's, he's helpless, and he cries out to God in verse 13. He cries out to him for mercy. He beats his breast. So you get this idea of just like a great like sadness over his, his sin. He feels unworthy to be before God. So he beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so he acknowledges who he is in light of who God is, right? He, he like the widow in the first parable, knows where to go, right? He, he knows God is the one who can offer mercy. That's the only place he can go. And he feels unworthy to go there, but he does it anyway. He, he has a posture that is crying out to the Lord with a humble heart, right? And then what happens? We see after that, Jesus says, I tell you, this man, in verse 14, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What a, what a switch, right? That's, that's not really how the world works, right? Like when we think of people that deserve things, you know, we, we have in our mind you know, maybe someone who like works really hard um, and does all the right things and just makes a good living for themselves. Like they deserve what they have, right? But this other person who maybe just really struggles to keep a job, maybe struggles um, with interpersonal relationships, you know, they don't deserve any of that stuff. Like who cares what happens to that person? Like we can do the same thing that the Pharisee's doing if we're not careful. Even, even us, even us sitting here, we can do that. And so I think we need to be, be careful when we, when we come to worship God. We, we need to be sure we're worshiping him out of a humble heart, one that's acknowledging we're a lot more like our brother than we are different from him, right? We, we are sinners in need of God's grace. We are people who are broken. Uh, we have issues that no one can fix. We've tried to fix our issues in a lot of cases, right? Maybe we've even seen other people to try to get their help, but but our, our deepest issue, our, the issue of our sin, no one can fix that but, but the Lord. And when we go to him with a humble heart, when we have this posture, similar to the tax collector, right? What do we see? We see God's grace. We see God justifies this sinner just as he has done with us if you're a Christian here today, right? If, if you can just recall your conversion for a moment, just think through what that looked like. You came to him empty-handed, right? You knew you were a sinner and you cried out to him for his grace. And what did he do? He, he gave it. He showed it to you in Christ. Um, and, and I think we, we can't lose sight of that, even in the, the craziness of life, right? Even while we're waiting in exile as pilgrims for the Lord to return, we can't lose sight of our need for him and how that need for him really puts us on common ground with people who are very different than us, right? And so uh, this Pharisee and this tax collector, their need was the same, even though one of those people didn't, didn't see that. He didn't notice it. Um, and so if you're here today and you're going through the motions of religion, you know, if you feel like that's kind of what you're doing, you're just kind of caught up in, in the stuff of following Christ, there's good news. You, you, don't have to, you don't have to do that. You don't have to be just going through the motions. Um, if we look again at verse 14, 
he says that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted, right? So humble yourself. Acknowledge your need for the Lord. Acknowledge that there's no number of right things you can do, no number of services you can attend, no number of prayers you can pray um, to earn favor in his sight, right? That's not what he's interested in. You don't have to perform for him. He's concerned with your heart. That's what he wants. He wants all of you, your heart that he has made and fashioned, right, specifically. That's what he wants. And that should free us, right? Knowing that that we don't have to perform, that should be a really freeing thing. But it should also make a lot of sense to us because Jesus is pointing us to his own posture, right? This, This posture of not exalting himself but humbling himself. Right? That's what Jesus did when Jesus came. The God of the universe came and humbled himself to live among the likes of these like, ragtag disciples that he was, he was with. Right, um, The God of the universe did. And he's taking the time to tell them these things. And he's taking the time as they travel together through his ministry to heal people, to spend time with people who the, the world cared nothing about. He humbled himself to do that. Right, And then we see later he humbled himself to death, to the cross. Right? He He did the ultimate humiliation. He offered up his life. And what happened when he did that, right? You you see kind of echoes back to verse 14. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. We see through the humiliation of the Lord, through his giving of himself to us, something great happened after that, right? He, He ascended into heaven. He was resurrected from the dead. He ascended into heaven where he's exalted and sitting at the right hand of God like right now. Um, and, and what's he doing? He's, he's doing his own version of this persistent prayer before his people to, to the Lord. He's like, God, keep my people following after me. Keep my people holy. Keep my people set apart, safe from the attacks of the devil. God's through, Christ is doing that right now in this moment. And and that posture should be so encouraging to us because the Lord's not calling us to do something he himself hasn't done. Right? He, he has humbled himself. Except the difference between him and between us is he didn't have any reason to do that um, from any like, superficial standpoint. Right? He did it out of love. He did it because he, he wanted to do it. And he wanted to give glory to his father. And that should be our same motivation. right? We've been saved by grace through faith. And that, and that should fuel our posture. That should fuel the way that we come to the Lord. That should fuel the way that we see others around us. And so this is a timely message for us, right? Um, because we see a lot in the world around us. There's so much interpersonal conflict of different kinds. You know, so many people aren't loving each other. Um, and the Lord isn't just calling us to love each other, but to, to love him so that we can love each other the right way. And so it's not a, not a superficial type of love, not a superficial um, type of living together. It's very intentional, it's very purposed, but it's all rooted in Christ, right? It's rooted in our knowing him and being known by him. And so that, that gets us to our final point. So our, our hope is in the Lord, and so we should have open hands that crowd to him, right? He's, he's where we can go for help, for justice. He's the only one we can go to. Our hope is in the Lord so we can cry out to him with a humble heart, right? He said that he hears us so we can cry out to him. We can acknowledge that we're unworthy before him and that we need his grace and he hears those cries. And then finally, as we look at this last last few verses, our home is with the Lord. 
so we can approach him in childlike confidence and childlike faith, right? Um, so if you've ever been around kids, whether or not you have them yourself, but if you've just been around them, it's easy to spotlight who their parents are by the way they act. Um, and, you know, if they're in trouble, they act a certain way. But more than that, more than just being in trouble and needing discipline, when children are hurt or when they need something or when they um, need help, they just immediately go straight to their mom or their dad, right? It's easy to just watch them, like, make a beeline to that person because they know their, their parent is there. Their parent is available to help them. Their parent loves them, right? And there's not a barrier um, between them and their parent, right? They know they can go straight to them for what they need. And that's what this final, final picture looks like. You know, there's um, this idea in verse, in verse 15. It says, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. So they would be the people that Jesus and the disciples are coming into contact with over the course of his, his travels, his ministry. People are bringing their babies to Jesus because they want him to bless them. They know that he can, um, can, can save, only he can save. And so they want their, their children to be blessed by him, to, to sit and experience his teaching, right? To, to learn from him just like they're learning from him. And does that sound familiar at all? We, we do that here every week, right? We have a handful of kids any given Sunday that are playing on the floor, wrestling on the floor, talking amongst themselves, you know, but, but they're here in the presence of Jesus. And, and that's where they need to be. That, that's why they're here. They need to be here, right? And so uh, that's what we see in this last section. The disciples, when they see all these people bringing their kids, it's almost like you get this picture of, like, bodyguards. Like, no, like, you know, get away. Like, he's too busy. Like, you're just kind of taking up too much time right? Um, but Jesus steps in and corrects them. And he says, no, let the children come to me and don't hinder them. So not just let them come, but let them come like in an intimate way. Like let them be with me where I am. Like you see like growing up and all these like Sunday school pictures, which I have mixed emotions about, but all these images of Jesus under a tree and like the children are sitting in his lap, you know, and, and, and we can kind of like see those images and like it doesn't really affect us, but but really, what a beautiful picture that is. You know, like, again, the God of the universe, who didn't have to humble himself at all, has, like, humbled himself to the point where he's even spending time with little kids who the rest of the, the world, even the disciples who love God, are saying, oh, like, you know, why waste your time? Like, why spend your time on, on these kids? And, and Jesus is saying, no, like, let them come and don't, don't keep them from me, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And so we just get this, this picture that, you know, even children, I'm sure people were bringing their babies, but I'm sure there were children that were going straight to Jesus because they heard who he was, just like their parents maybe, but they knew they could go to him. They knew he was the one who had these words of life they needed to hear, maybe, right? And even though sitting in Jesus' presence didn't save these kids, just like it doesn't save the kids here today, right, or any other week, it, it doesn't save them just to be here, but God works in the midst of them being here, right? as they're hearing his word, as they're experiencing his spirit on display through our worship, as they're hearing people pray and cry out to God out of hearts that are humble, out of hearts that are desperate. Um, our kids are affected by that just like adults are, right? And so don't dismiss that, right? Don't, don't, don't be too distracted by the cries and the, and the wrestling or whatever's going on on Sundays. And, and I struggle with that as well, just to, to stay focused. But just remember that the kids need to be here too. We want them to be at the feet of Jesus because we need to be there. And we know how good it is to be at his feet, right? And so 
Um, Jesus, in this characteristic way, is really painting this picture of unfettered access, right? Like he wants the children to come where they want. He wants them to be right with him. Um, and this is just where you and I need to be. You know, as, as I, I said before, it's, it's those of us with hearts like children, that hearts where we know that Jesus is the only one that we can go to um, for, for hope, for life, um, for meaning in our life, right? He's the only one we can go to. And so this is how we should approach him as well, just making a beeline to where he is, right? And so that's why our presence here on Sundays is so important, I think, because that's what we're doing. We're taking steps to be with him, right? And, and it's easy, I think, to see the difference if you've been coming regularly and maybe if the, the weather is doing whatever winter does or if COVID's doing whatever COVID's gonna do, like our inability to meet together is noticed, I think, in our hearts, right? Like back last year when we had to have a lot of online services and we couldn't meet together at all, like there wasn't an option to do that. Um, I don't know about you, but that, I felt that. That was hard to do, right? And not that Jesus is any less real or any less present, but he's, he's real in a very specific way when his people are gathered like this right now. And we need that, you know, and that's going to keep driving us to, to his presence more and more when we're not meeting, right? As we go out, as we go home, as we go spend time with family and friends, um, our corporate presence here is going to fuel what we do in those other moments. Um, and so we want that. We want to come with hearts that are humble, like the tax collector. We want to have a posture of humility. We want to come like the persistent widow out of, out of desperation, but also purpose, like knowing that Jesus is the only place we have to go. If we're going to survive our exile, if we're going to survive life in this broken world, um, we're going we're gonna to have to do that. We're going to have to have a posture that knows he's our only hope and, and act out of that knowledge, right? Go to him as often as we need to, right? If it's the same prayer every day, like Jesus is saying, pray that, be persistent in that way. I hear your prayers, right? And he does. And just what a beautiful thing that is, that he hears us when we, when we cry to him. And so in closing, you know, the Israelites, going back to Isaiah, didn't trust the Lord perfectly. Um, and in fact, trusted him quite like imperfectly. You know, and maybe that's, that's us today. Like maybe you feel like your Christian walk is pretty imperfect. Or maybe... You're here today and you're not a Christian at all and you don't even know what a Christian walk is and we're glad you're here hearing God's word. Um, but even though that's the case, even though Israel failed a lot of times, even though we fail quite often, we see in the midst of that, in the midst of our rebellion, um, Isaiah has some words about what the Lord is going to, going to do. So just to close, close with Isaiah 30, 18 through 22, just hear, hear what Isaiah says, you know, even after he talks to them about all the judgment that's coming, even after Jesus talks to his disciples and those he's teaching about the coming day of the Lord, uh, listen to this picture that's presented to us here. Um, Isaiah 18, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. 
and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And when you turn to the left or when you turn to the right, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metals, metal images. You shall scatter them as unclean things and you shall say to them, be gone. And so I think our heart posture is so important. Um, and until we see Jesus and experience who he is and see his grace firsthand at work in our life, we're never going to get to that point where, where we do that, where we say to all the idols in our life, all the hindrances in our life, be gone from me, right, until we experience him. And, and today, you know, maybe you have experienced him over and over. Maybe you've been following Christ for a long time, but maybe you just feel weary this morning. Um, this is the same promise, right? The Lord is, is gracious to us. Like he doesn't waste time giving his grace to his people, right? He, he does it speedily. He does it right away. And in a few moments when we observe the Lord's Supper, we get a picture of that, God's grace, right here, right now, for us. And as we, as we think through that, as we prepare our hearts over the next few moments, um, let's just pray and ask God that, you know, he would shatter those idols in our hearts as we observe the supper, that we could leave here seeing that he's so much better and that he's, he's available. He wants us to cry to him um, and that we can say to those idols, be gone. We don't need you anymore. You know, we have something better. And so let's, let's close in prayer as we prepare to observe that and, and acknowledge that together. Father, thank you that you are a good and gracious God, that you lavish your grace on us. You don't withhold it for your people. When we ask for it, when we ask for justice, when we ask uh, for mercy, for refuge from the evil one, you don't delay those things. You help us. You, you hear us and you help. And God, we, we praise you that you do that, that you love us the way that you do. I pray that as we observe the Lord's Supper this morning as we spend time experiencing your grace in a, in a tangible way. I pray that that would change something in our hearts, that that would fuel our joy um, for you, that that would fuel our love for other people, and that that would um, improve the posture of our hearts as we wait for you in this fallen world until you come. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.